our youngest children are going to go to their groups and uh, they'll have fun as they do. I, I know I comment on this often, but I love to see their enthusiasm as they go. Um, just enthusiasm's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Just to, you, you catch it from other people sometimes. So don't ever discourage enthusiastic people. Let them be enthusiastic. And particularly if they're enthusiastic for God. Let just fan that into flame in one another. And uh, don't ever try and dampen anybody's fire if they're, if they're enthusiastic. Um, well, it's, it's Palm Sunday today. Do you know that? That means next Sunday is Easter Sunday, and uh, that's exciting. Um, we get to celebrate the resurrection together, the long build-up as we have looked through uh, the stories of the Gospels and, and prayed through this kind of period of several weeks leading up to Easter. Ne- this Sunday's Palm Sunday, and next Sunday's Easter Sunday. And, and I want to read from the Palm Sunday reading uh, in Luke's Gospel. So I'm going to get there in just a minute. But before I get there, have you ever sort of been out in town or maybe on the bus or the train or somewhere and you've caught a glimpse of someone and you've thought, I wonder if that's... And, and you haven't perhaps had the courage to go and find out. Uh, it might be a famous person. You've se- you thought you've seen them, but you're not quite sure. Uh, Rob and I were out last week in town getting them some supplies for an event we did last Saturday. And uh, Rob said, oh, look, there's Tom Baker over there. And uh, it was Tom Baker over there, the Doctor Who character from from years ago, from my childhood. Um, We didn't go in and disturb him. I know he lives locally. I've seen him before in town, um, which is, oh, that's interesting. I've got a friend who uh, has a shaved head. Uh, He's a pastor in another church. He he apparently looks a bit like Ross Kemp and uh, was recounting a story recently of when he was out with some friends in a pub and they were sat having a meal and... And, and some people were staring at him for the whole of the meal. And eventually people came across and asked him if he was actually Ross Kemp. And, and he disappointed them and said, no, I'm not actually. You've just been staring at the wrong bloke all meal. Uh, but he gets that all the time apparently where people think that he's this, this kind of famous character. I don't know if you've ever done that. Uh, sometimes you look at someone and see, I wonder if that's so-and-so. Well, today we're going to read a passage where as we read it through, I want you to notice the different descriptions that people have for Jesus, the different way they're seeing him. And because I, I, I think there's a really important question that we're going to be looking at today, which is basically, who do you say he is? Who do you say Jesus is? And I believe that this is a really important question today. So the scene is this. Jesus has been doing some teaching and he's coming towards the city of Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to read about today. Hopefully you can see that. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, Its owners asked, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is he 
is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will, oops, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children are within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The question is this, how do you see Jesus? I believe that God's identity and, and our perception of God's identity is the most fundamental question we can ask today. And you might think that's really strange with Syria in crisis, with the Northern, Northern Ireland peace talks seemingly unraveling or peace situation seemingly unraveling, with Britain navigating its way towards and through Brexit, with, with people wondering about the future of the NHS or social care provision in the in the country, young people wondering if they could ever buy a house. You might be thinking, should I or shouldn't I have a biscuit with my coffee later? You might be thinking about all these great questions of humanity, and you might wonder why is who God is the most important thing? I, I do believe it's the most important question that we can ask, not just philosophically, but personally as well. It's the most important defining issue for every day and every year and every generation. And depending on my answer to that question, it determines how I live and how I approach life. There's been a recent focus in the church worldwide over recent years on our own identity, on who we are in Christ. And that's great. It's good. And that's encouraging. And it's, it's important that we do look at those things, that we see who we are in Christ Jesus. But that all flows from who God is. It flows and comes from who God is. It doesn't, it's not separate to that. It, it's determined by who God is himself is we've heard already about chimney's name my god is alive what a wonderful declaration well this passage i said is filled with some different examples so we're going to go through these really quickly verse 29 in the bible if you've got your bible open it's luke 19 uh, jesus it says here in, in the text two of his disciples uh, were sent and he said to them go to the village ahead of you so we've got firstly that jesus is a discipler that he's one who calls other people to follow. And we re read stories about Jesus calling people. Last week, some of us were here and heard a guy called Michael uh, who told his story about growing up and joining the mafia and all that was involved in that and his story of leaving that and what was involved in following Jesus. And he was telling his story about identifying with God's call in his life. A great story. And many of us have discovered what it means to follow God in this great adventure of discipleship. But the reality is that some also set off well. Set off well, called by God and start well on the journey, but get a certain way along and, and kind, of, kind of park. And sometimes there's a tendency for us, when we've been called by God, to get so far along the journey of following him and then just park up and say, well, I think this is far enough, isn't it, Lord? I know you called me to follow, but I've come a little way already. I think that's probably all right. Thank you. I'll, I'll probably stop here and just park a while. And you can go on and, and deal with those really enthusiastic people, but I'll just stay here and settle 
here, and sometimes we kind of have that challenge. We don't feel rebellious. It doesn't feel as if we're going in a different direction. But in reality, we are just um, doing our own thing because we're not following Jesus' way. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is Lord. Verse 30 in this text says that he's Lord. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a cult there. Andy? Wonderful. We've had some extra children arrive, which is exciting. So Andy's just going to go and explain where all our groups are for our kids. And I'm going to try and get this thing fitted back on my head. There we go. Wonderful stuff. So Jesus is Lord. There's this... Barry, I'm going to go for this one. Is that all right? I'll try that again another week. Apparently it's better for the sound, but I think the head's the wrong shape. There we go. Oh, well. I'll find what's... That'll, that'll just shove down the back somewhere. You won't notice, will you? There we go. If I giggle halfway through, I'm getting tickled by a microphone. Jesus is also Lord in verse 30. And uh, I find that really interesting. There's this little passage which explains that um, the, the master needs, or the Lord needs the donkey. And you can read this as if it's a, a kind of prophetic statement that Jesus is predicting that there'll be a cult somewhere in a particular place, a young donkey, and he's prophesying, go and, go and speak to these people and, and they'll let you have the donkey if you say this kind of code word. Or you can read it as if Jesus has arranged it, that he's gone ahead and he's, he's kind of gone ahead of the disciples and had a chat with the owner of this donkey and kind of made a secret deal and special deal. Well, either of those could be true or neither of them might be because apparently uh, there's a a kind of common practice that if you were of sufficient standing and status in society, uh, and a rabbi, a teacher would qualify with this, you could place demands on certain people and say, actually, the Lord needs this, or the rabbi needs this at this time. And, and borrowing the donkey would fall into that category. And so it could just be that this is a, a kind of cultural practice, which, though we don't understand it, because it's not our culture, is actually understood in the day. And Jesus is saying, look, the Lord needs it. Now, interestingly, in this, in this verse, verse 30, when it talks about the owners of the cult or the owners of the donkey, the word for owner there is lord, kurios, lords. They're the owners. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says the Lord needs it. I find that really interesting because no matter how uh, much authority anybody else has, Jesus is really saying, well, the Lord needs it. You might be lords, but the Lord needs the cult at this time. And no matter how much authority people have in the world, Jesus is above and beyond. He's the Lord. And I think it's a, sometimes the case that people are invited to find Jesus as Savior or friends. They're invited to follow him as, as, as one they can believe in and belong to, one who can wash away their sin. But those same people at times can struggle and be surprised to discover that Jesus is Lord too. It's great having our sin washed away and being cleansed, but Jesus doesn't just call us to make us clean once. He calls us to follow him as the Lord of all. And that can be a shock to the system. Again, Michael was sharing uh, just over a week ago about his own story, and the key point was when he knew he needed to surrender to Jesus. 
to surrender to God. And he said, I, I'm not someone who surrenders. I don't give in. I don't surrender. Uh, but actually, that was what he needed to do. And we need to do that for Jesus. Thirdly, we see that Jesus was a miracle worker. It says in verse 37, there were crowds of disciples there who began to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. That's wonderful. It's exciting. Some people were seeing what great miracles Jesus had done and were there to celebrate and to rejoice. And we need some of that today. We need to see the miracles of Jesus today, but he's more than just a miracle worker. To some, they could see that there was a king who was coming. And verse 38 said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Referencing a psalm, but also pointing back to a, an ancient prophecy, which had spoken about a messianic king who would come riding on a donkey, not like a Roman king, riding on a horse with pomp and ceremony, but a king riding on a donkey. We also see that he's seen as the teacher. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees say Jesus say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees, as we'll see later, were happy with Jesus being teacher, but not necessarily happy with him being anything else. With all those different things going on, I've just got a few encouragements to share today. Firstly this, don't limit God by your expectations and experiences. It's very possible to miss who Jesus is. Despite all of that that was going on before, Jesus rides towards the city and weeps over it. And he says this. He says he's weeping because if, uh, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. A little bit later on, he said you did not recognize the time of God coming to you. Isn't that amazing? That when Jesus is seen as a disciple, a Lord, a miracle worker, a king, a teacher, that still people are missing what God is doing. They're missing the point of what all this is about. The city of Jerusalem was near on destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman army. Temple was destroyed. City was attacked. People killed. And Jesus is warning that things are going to go very wrong for the city. He's weeping for what is to come as he rides in and they can't see what's coming. And the Pharisees were limited by their expectations. They, they could cope with Jesus as teacher and rabbi, but they, they were really struggling to see beyond that. It's also possible to get stuck in a previous experience. In the Old Testament, it's full of stories of of times when the nation was away from God and God was sending prophets to go and speak the truth, to go and speak his word. And at the same time, there were false prophets who were looking back to the days when things had been rosy and lovely. And the false prophets were saying, oh, it'll be fine. It'll all be all right. God loves us. It'll be okay. He's doing good. He wants to bless. He wants to bless. He wants to bless. But God was actually saying to the nation, you've gone away from me. Wake up. Wake up. And, and there was a limitation on the experiences of the false prophets because they just wanted everything to be nice and cozy and they weren't actually listening to God anymore. It was only the real prophets of God who were actually listening to what God was wanting to say. Similarly, back further in the Old Testament with people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as they're traveling around on their travels and they're meeting with God, some amazing things happen. 
they, they have some incredible encounters with God. And as they do, they, they often set up pillars of stones to remind themselves and to, to be places of worship where they're meeting with God and they're worshiping him. To remind themselves of what God has done in a previous time, in a previous moment. But those pillars aren't like fences that they stay at, that they're bounded in by. They're not memorials that they permanently base themselves at. They don't set up camp and stay there. They're pillars to mark the way on the journey to say, this is where God met me, but I'm still moving on. And there are times when we can be limited by a brilliant experience that God has done because we're not prepared to move into the next thing that God wants us to see. God is more than we've seen in the past. He's bigger than we think. You know, at times in in church life and in church history, people have discussed their ideas of God. And some have talked about Jesus being Savior, and there's been an emphasis run through the church on Jesus' salvation. And then there might be an emphasis on, on the Holy Spirit as as, as people are emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit today, that God is with us by his Spirit. And then there might be an emphasis on God being Father and the wonderful revelation of what God's fathering of us means and the depth and truth of that. And then that might be another revelation of something else that follows on from that. Well, do you know, all of those are true. You don't have to choose. And it's wonderful revelation to understand that these, these visions of God are not competing. They're complementary. They go together. And you can choose to have one who is Lord and Savior and friend and king and brother and father. And does all that make sense? He's, he's all of those things and more besides. We shouldn't limit God by a good or a bad experience in our past. This is all important for us personally. Alan, would you mind just clicking back on, on the uh, easy worship, please? And I can. There we go. Thank you very much. Because how we see God affects our response to him. The people in this passage that I've read from earlier responded to Jesus based on their recognition of him. The two disciples that he called had followed Jesus and went and did what he said because they were his disciples. Those who had the cult, when they heard that the Lord needed it, they obeyed and let go and gave them the donkey. Those who were there in the city because of the miracles Jesus had done were cheering and rejoicing and praising because of the miracles. They were all responding by type. They were responding based on uh, their experience of God and their, their perception of God. Those who saw Jesus as king were welcoming him into the city. And the Pharisees who were seeing Jesus as a teacher were basically saying to him, act like one. Act like a teacher. Don't like act like a king. Don't act, act like a miracle worker. Don't act like Lord. Act like a teacher because that's how we see you. The recognition that we have of God determines our response to him. My perspective of God changes my approach to him. It changes my response to him. It changes my faith, my trust, my confidence. It changes even my choices in life. It changes the friends I have, the jobs I take. It changes everything. Let me give you an example. How I see God affects my response. Let me give you an example. How we think God handles our failure affects our response to failure. Think for a moment, if you know the Bible story, of a chap called Peter. 
Peter was an enthusiast. Peter was one of Jesus' followers, and he chose to, to step out again and again and trust God. He, he chose to do some, some great things, some crazy things at times, seemingly trusting God where others wouldn't necessarily. And there was one monumental moment where Peter failed, and he absolutely blew it. And it's not until a couple of chapters later in the story in the, in the Gospel of John that we read about Jesus restoring Peter and making things okay again and putting things back together again in his life. But Peter had failed in a way that was pretty dramatic. But Peter was one who had seen how Jesus deals with failure. He'd seen how Jesus deals with those who don't have enough faith or those who make a mistake or those who choose to sin or those who even abandon him and Peter had seen what Jesus had done and so when Jesus restores him I think Peter's grateful for that and and probably uh, wonderfully relieved but also not surprised that Jesus is the restorer of people who are broken and who've sinned and it's Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost just a little while later and preaches his heart out and the church is formed based around that that time as the Holy Spirit's given it's Peter who's the one who we see first healing somebody else in the book of Acts. It's Peter that's taking brave steps again because he's seen how Jesus deals with failure. He's, he's got the principle that actually you can't fail beyond God's, God's grace. He, he's big enough to pick you up. He's big enough to restore. He's gracious enough to make it okay. Not by pretending everything's all right, but dealing with sin, restoring and moving on. Peter grasped that, and I think it affected his response to life after that. There are many more examples we could give, but we'll leave it there. If we see God primarily as our comforter, whose primary responsibility is to make us feel comfortable, we will view all the challenges of life as if God has let us down. Because when we come up against a difficult time, we'll think, God, where are you? Your job is to make me feel comfortable. Well, the Holy Spirit is our comforter and our counselor, but he's also so many other things, and I think we need to hold all of those together in our role of following Jesus and responding to him. If we see Jesus primarily, or God primarily as our Lord, our response to God will be determined by looking for opportunities to obey him, but not necessarily sit in his presence and enjoy him. Because we're looking only to do what he says, and there's more than that. In this passage, people are taking different responses to Jesus as he's riding into the city or towards the city in Luke's gospel. There are different responses and people are seeing Jesus differently. And I've already said it affects our response to God, but I want to encourage us even more. I think we should expect to grow and change over the years. Many of us have heard that saying, first impressions count. And in business, you're schooled to make a good first impression. You might have been taught how to do a decent handshake or how to make eye contact and stand up straight and make a good impression. You know, those people are being trained for interview techniques or whatever else. You, you, you need to make a good impression. You need to be, be liked as you, you get to see people for the first time. Well, that's okay for business. But it's less good for friendships. Because all of us know friends that might be a surprise to us that we are their friends. Maybe they didn't make a good first impression. Maybe when we met them the first time, we thought, oh, who are you? But as time's gone on, we've got to know them a little better, and we've got to like them a little better, and we've discovered hidden depths that we didn't see at first that had we gone on our first impression, we wouldn't have known. 
And we've allowed ourselves to enter into a friendship that's blessed us and we've been a blessing in. I think it's the same with our relationship with God and our view of him, that it should ex- we should expect it to change. When Jesus' disciples were first called, they didn't have a clue who he was. Jesus called them and said, follow me. And, and they said, yes, we will. They'd been impressed with something, but they didn't know who he was. Because it's not until chapters and chapters later that Jesus says, who do you think I am? And, and they're able to answer. But before then, even when they're on mission trips, even when they're healing the sick in his name and casting out demons and doing all sorts of amazing things, they still don't fully know who he is. But their view is being shaped and formed as they watch and listen and do. I think it's not until after the resurrection and then after some further contemplation and reflection that they then understand fully who Jesus is. How do we see God? How do you and I see God? Do we see him in the same way that we did a decade ago? Or a year ago? Or a month ago? Or a week ago? Or yesterday? And maybe yesterday is too short a time frame, but if, if I pick a longer time frame of a month or a year, do we still see God in the same way? And if we do, why? You might say, well, God's changeless. Yeah, but you didn't know him all a month ago. We hadn't discovered all that there was to know about God a month ago, nor a year ago, nor a decade ago, because God's ways are beyond fathoming, the Bible tells us. So much of God is, is, it just seems so vast and so huge that it's difficult for us to get to grips with. God is always doing a new thing. And I would encourage us to be looking to see something new of God day by day as we draw closer to him, as we draw in. What have you noticed about God that's different, that you hadn't noticed a month ago, or that you hadn't noticed a year ago? Jot it down. Encourage yourself that you're seeing new things in God. Just a word of warning. There are two ways you can, our views can change. One is when we're moving towards God. And we're pressing into him and we're, we're, we're receiving fresh revelation. We're making fresh observations about God. As we're moving closer to him, we can say, wow, I'm seeing God in a new way. The other way you have a different view of God from the way you previously did is if you're moving away from God. And if your focus is less on him and more on yourself, then your view of God will inevitably change. And you think sometimes that you've come to a new place, but actually you've just distanced yourself from God. And the revelation is, is not a godly revelation. It's just that we've shaped God in our own image sometimes. And that's dangerous. We've all been there at times. How do we grow? How do we move from observing Jesus in one phase, in one mode of existence, but grow through to knowing him fully? Grow to not just being somebody waving a palm branch on Palm Sunday. Not just someone who's, who's taking a snapshot decision. Oh, that's who Jesus is. But how do we grow to move on in our understanding of Jesus? I think we can do several things. I think we grow through observation, reflection, and revelation. I think like the disciples, we observe Jesus. We listen to him. We, we see what he's doing, but also we need to think and reflect on what he's done. And ultimately, we need God to speak to us. As we're reading the Bible, as we're spending time in prayer, as we're talking to other people, we, we, we don't read the Bible because it's a good book alone. 
We read it not to memorize the pages, but we read it to get to know the author. We, we read it to get to know God. And so as we're reading, we want to know more of him. It's the same when we pray. We want to listen and, and have God reveal himself to us. I don't believe we're ever called to level off in our awareness of who God is. I don't think any of us are to get to a place and go, do you know, I'm done. I think I've got this God thing. I think I've got Jesus sorted. I I know all about him. I know who he is. I've got the whole God and man and son and savior and king. And don't, if you find yourself leveling off, give yourself a little slap or a firm one if you need to. But just, just take hold of the opportunity that there is to discover more of Jesus, to be more in love with God day by day, to to be refreshed. And if you're worn out and weary and facing challenges, uh, don't focus on those. Have another look at who God is. Be amazed, like we were hearing earlier from Obi. Be amazed at God's love and his who he, who he is and what he can do in your life, because God wants to reveal more than he has done in the past. Finally, another great way to move on is to celebrate what you see. And yet, press in for more. I've said in this passage that people are seeing Jesus as discipler, as Lord, as miracle worker, as king, as teacher. And Jesus, by the end of it, is grieving that the people of the city have missed the point, that they haven't seen him, that they haven't seen what God is doing, that they've missed what God is all about, that they've missed the point of, of actually seeing him fully and yet and yet Jesus doesn't dismiss any of those people at any point in that story when someone is shouting out blessed be the king Jesus doesn't say no 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 well I'm more besides when when someone is treating Jesus as lord he doesn't say yes I am but I'm more besides when he's a teacher he doesn't say yes I am but I'm more besides he allows people to have the revelation that they've got. He doesn't discourage them. And if you feel like you only know God a tiny bit, be encouraged. Jesus isn't going to slap you down and say, well, you should know more. He wants to welcome you in. It's why we were talking earlier in our time of dedication for for Little Chimdi. I'm I'm reading that passage about Jesus welcoming the children and valuing them and, and not dismissing them because they show us the way into God's kingdom. It's not about having all the answers. But it's about coming close to God and trusting him and depending on him. We can and should respond and follow in faith based on what we already know with a desire to know, to know more. We shouldn't wait until perfection comes or perfect revelation comes. We shouldn't wait until we've read the whole book and got all the answers and understand everything fully to begin following Jesus more closely. Why? Because the day of perfect revelation isn't coming. Not in this life. Might do in the next. We might get some questions answered, or the questions might not be questions anymore because we might not be bothered anymore. But the day of perfect revelation isn't coming, so get on with what you can see. You know, sometimes some of us wait until we've got more answers before we say yes to God. We wait until we, we, we've got everything tied up before we obey God, but God's calling us today to step out and trust him, even if we don't know all the answers. Don't despise what you can see. Don't envy the revelation that others have. 
but on the basis of what God has shown you already and shown me already. Let's serve him and live for him and press in for more. Let's work on the basis of what God has already shown us. Pausing to observe what he's doing. Giving space to reflect on what we've seen. And listening and looking for revelation. How we see God affects how we live for him. It affects the choices we make, big and small. On this one day, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, it affected the response of a crowd to the Savior that was coming into the city. None of them really understood at that point what was who he was and what he was about. Some had a good idea. Some were already following. Some were giving all they had to follow him, but still didn't fully understand at that point, and that was okay. Jesus took the faith that each of them had and cheered them on. He didn't dismiss them. He cheered them on. And I would encourage us today to recognize that we see in part that the revelation of God that we've had so far is a partial one and that God is calling us to see him more, to know him more. And so today, my heart's cry is that we might celebrate what God has already done, but press on for more, that our understanding of God might change and grow as we draw closer to him, and that we might see him and know him more than we do already. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for today on this Palm Sunday. Today we're celebrating people moving, or you coming into Jerusalem and people rejoicing and, and being glad. Lord, thank you that we too can rejoice and be glad today. Thank you, Lord, that we, though we feel at times like we have such limited knowledge, you don't dismiss us. You don't patronize us. You don't put us down. But you welcome us to come with our limited revelation, our limited understanding, and you delight to show us more of yourself. And God, we thank you for generations of people who've written, who've, who've delved, who've searched after you. And when we've got the benefits of their learning too, but Lord, we long for fresh revelation. We want to know you more. We don't just want to see a tiny glimpse and live on the basis of that, but Lord, we want to see and comprehend with faith who you are and how you're calling us to live. God, if there are those in this place, and I would include myself in this, Lord, if there are any of us here who've shrunk you down or whose vision of you has not changed for good reasons over the last year or two or three, Lord, we repent of that. We pray that you would enlarge our vision, freshen our revelation, come afresh again to us that we might see you more clearly. Lord, if there are those in this place who who've drawn away from you and have a different understanding of you, but it's actually not a good one. Lord, I pray that you'd reveal yourself again and you'd draw them to yourself. That like Peter, you'd pick them up and restore and recommission for the days that are ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.